The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm Claudia Shambaugh, your host. Welcome you to Ask a Leader here. It's the May 22nd, 2012 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, we're certainly going to hear about how sustainability is being operationalized all over this beautiful campus, from the latest performing arts development to hospitality and dining, then to the transit arenas. But before I do... I would like to dedicate my 100th show today to a very important person to me at this radio station. I dedicate this show to Heather McCoy for all of her inestimable guidance in the process of radio. I prepare and produce these shows, most of them live alone, but before and after the broadcast, Heather's assistant gets me in, uh, she assists in different ways. And Heather, I thank you for your help and answers to the technical questions without the least bit of eye-rolling that I can detect anyway. Thanks so much, Heather. And I, I know I'm going to have more questions in the future, just holding that place, that request out there. And I want everybody to know how much you mean to me. Thanks so much, and good luck with keeping it here at UC, KUCI. We'll be right back with our first guest, uh, first of three guests, Luke Hagel-Cantrell, after a brief break. So don't go away. Well, thanks for joining us. Well, it wasn't long ago when Keith Bangs, the guy who puts together the stage sets here at UCI, pulled me indoors to the theater where he showed off his latest pride and joy, the new Swan Theater. With the theater comes a line of productions that we can all savor this summer. Will you fill in all the details as we talk to my first guest on Ask a Leader, UCI professor Luke Hagel Cantarella, head of scenic design and designer of the new Swan Theater, co-designed by Sarah uh, Sedigati Pizet. You can help me out with this, Luke. Uh, it's uh, Sedigat Pache. Sedigat Pache. Thank you. She's also of UC Irvine. Luke's other credits include the 214-square-foot exhibition about which we spoke last month, uh, along with his partner, and uh, as well in other production, productions on PBS's Nova, Julie and Julia, along with many other film and television series. But I won't go on about TV and film. This is radio we're talking here right now. Luke joins me here today in Studio A. Welcome to the Luke. Welcome to the show, Luke Hagel Cantarella. Thank you, Claudia. It's great to be here. I could rename this Luke. Welcome to the Luke today. I must say <laughs> that your recent creation of the New Swan Theater, it's a marvel to behold. First, would you please describe to our listeners, hungry for culture within their grasp, what this intimate theater that seats 125 looks like. 
Thanks, uh, Claudia. I'd love to talk about the theater today. Um, First, let me give you some background on um, the project. Um, in in the drama department, we're always looking for ways to um, rethink about the form. And one of the things that we think about a lot is Shakespeare, right? And Shakespeare's and how to do Shakespeare in a in a contemporary fashion. This year, um, through the the guidance of our chair Eli Simon, we came up with this idea of creating. Uh, instead of just a new set, I'm normally a set designer um, right. for uh, a production of Merchant of Venice we were doing. Instead, to build a whole new theater that would uh, replicate, uh, in some ways, um, the kind of stages that were used during the early modern uh, Elizabethan period. Um, so we're talking 1580 to 1620, right? It's 40 years of um, time, which are 40 of the most important years in the history of Western drama. Okay. Uh, um, and uh, one that we look back to again and again uh, as theater makers. So we wanted to see how we could figure out what people back then had learned about the way theater works and the plays that were written for those theaters and try to make a new space here at UCI that could reflect that. Fine. So it's it's, it's about Shakespeare now, but I it's it will... Is it potentially um, a workable set for other than a Shakespearean production? Um, the space is, um, uh, to imagine it, it's, it, it's shaped sort of like a, a keyhole. Um, there's a round shell that's two stories tall um, that seats audience on, on three levels. There's a row of audience on the floor, uh, a row of audience on, on a level we call the mezzanine, and then a, a, an audience right above them on the balcony. Um, but a, each member of the audience is only maybe 10 or 15 feet away from an actor. So it's an extremely intimate space, um, and one that puts the actor in the center uh, and the audience almost surrounding them. Uh, it's not quite in the round. There's one area in the back, if you can imagine, sort of the bottom of the keyhole that we call the tiring house. Now, the, the term tire ring or t how does that spelled tiring house the term comes from um, the Elizabethan era um, a shortening of the retiring house um, where actors would go to retire oh. um, when they weren't on stage um, so in the the globe for instance Shakespeare's large theater uh, built on the south bank of London um, that was the what we might think about as the stage area sort of behind the stage uh -huh. um, but they called that the tiring house Um and uh, so our this theater is designed so you can seat audience um, all the way around if you want to, or or only maybe uh, three quarters of the way around. But really putting the, um, I'd say the fundamental quality of it is, is that it puts the actor and their voice at the center of the theatrical event. So that's very good for doing Shakespeare's plays because they're not reliant on making a kind of scenic image. Um, it's less. It's a, the spoken word. It's it's yeah. It's exactly. the joke. It's the pun. It's the comic relief. It's the sustain 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 suspension mm -hmm. sustain tension is another thing I was trying to say. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. It's there's a there's a way in which the language in Shakespeare's plays and plays of that era um, will tell the audience, you know. Here's our scene. They, they usually in the first few lines of a speech, you you learn the time of day, the location of the setting, uh, and any other important details that aren't going to be represented. The way we now in our contemporary theater or in cinema are used to having what we might call an establishing shot. Right? Shakespeare puts the establishing shot right into the text, 
Um, so in that case, we can create a theater space in which is less about um, showing the audience uh, where they are and more about watching the way the actors relate with each other and the way the actors relate to the audience. Um, so it's very um, what we call presentational sort of space, um, in, uh, to use a theatrical term, in which the, the distance or the separation between the performer and the audience is very small. So you always get the sense of being part of the show. Very much a part. I yeah. mean, I was I, there wasn't a person around, but just when when Keith was showing me, you know, where I could position myself, and and I want to say, well, it's everybody gets in there. It's 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 accessible to everybody. And in fact, you've got on the very the first level of seating is actually their cushions that are on the the level where the actors are performing. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's so it's, it's amazing. And it's not just one twenty five as the the marker, but the whole construct. I always like um, this experience of um, feeling a little um, somehow put in another physical relationship when I go to the theater. And so the idea of sitting on the floor, for instance, um, you know, that experience takes us really, you know, will take takes you back, right? Like it was something you did as a kid, sit on the floor often, um, but it's not something we do as adults very, very much. And so I think when you see, when you go to see a play and you're put in that position, you're really kind of opened up to a new sort of way to experience the stage. The same way that also, um, if you go to the highest level of seating in this theater, you take a more sort of uh, observational, um, perhaps analytical point of view on the stage. So that, that again puts you in a kind of different emotional state. And that was something that's very, very important to me to think about in relation to creating a new Elizabethan theater, the way in which, depending on where you sat in the theater, you had a different sort of uh, responsibility to the theatrical event. Um, and uh, something that, um, well, so in the history of, of, of 20th century theater, we'd moved away from, um, we, we made large theaters in which we tried to make everybody feel like they were part of one big democratic mass, right? That's kind of part of our ethos, right, as a culture. Theater as a way to express democracy. It's very different than the Shakespearean theater, right, where you had the, the poor, the, the groundlings, they called them, standing on the ground, jammed together in a way that our current contemporary fire codes would never allow. And then elevated above that, you had the nobles, um, uh, who who also came to the theater, who then could watch not only the uh, players on the stage, but also the players, um, the public in the audience, um, who were making this kind of theatrical spectacle happen um, in a way in which they were really figuring out um, kind of how they wanted their, their culture to operate. Um, London was such a small town. We always, I think people forget that. London was such a small town um, at the time, you know, smaller than Irvine is today, right? No kidding. So um, that's a good thing to think uh, about. Everybody, you know, there's a real um, way in which everything is condensed, um, and the theater is a place in which people are able to talk to each other across class boundaries, like and a political little boundaries. cross talk or callback response, in a sense. Exactly before the African American church here. Yeah, or like a town square. Um, yes. we might have today. The or, Lord of the Commons. Yeah, and the or the yes, the um, Parliament. And so, um, you know, it's it's a it's in a way it becomes a prototype for these more um, the Elizabethan stage becomes a prototype for the other democratic forms that arise later in England, like you know, Parliament as a as a democratic space exactly. doesn't really exist at that time. Um, it's it's um, developed throughout the throughout the well, really after the Revolution, 
um, in England. But um, yes, we had to have the 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 Enlightenment kick in and the Age of Reason, and then we have yeah. that uh, governmental process uh, known as uh, democracy. Yeah. Well, so that's very interesting how theater um, could uh, em- embody that kind of a. Uh, inter-demographic sort of a mm-hmm. dynamic. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I, I want to give yourself credit for all the features on it. We're, we're talking about sustainability today. Right, exactly. And so uh, part of uh, the structure is uh, made of recyclable materials. Uh, uh, that's a uh, We, we want to give it lip service. It's, it's not as a flashy topic when you think about the cultural side in a way, but tell us what, oh, what that, kinds of materials go into that this. That was a very interesting process for me, too, because um, when I started the project... Um, of course, I think we all now as designers are aware of um, the need to think about uh, sustainability and to think about um, how the work we do can be green in a way. Um, but it wasn't an overriding concern when I started this project. And then I started researching more about how they built the theaters in Elizabethan England. Turns out they were very concerned with sustainability, too. Well, they had uh, very little money they to had put it together. Very little money, very And they weren't materials. shipping around the world getting cheap things from uh, around the Pacific Atlantic Rim or something like exactly, that. Exactly, exactly. Um, so the, the main timbers for, for the Globe Theater are thought to have been um, reclaimed lumber from another theater built by um, the father of one of the members of the Globe Company My that goodness. was in the north part of London. That theater we just is just known as the theater, um, and so the the thought is when that theater got torn down, they pulled the timbers down and then made the new globe out of them. And so I thought this is very interesting, kind of reused um, or upcycled materials. Um, they're a concern in in the sort of you know in a way these you know the um, pre-industrial age. Um, uh, architecture. It's very green and it's very sustainable. Of course. Um, and by its nature, right? Right. Um, and so so that, that became an, an, um, a way to both address a contemporary concern and kind of honor an historical past. So for this theater, for instance, we... Um, to create the seating, we bought all um, used um, office chairs from actually U- the UC San Diego salvage um, facility. You know, each of our big UCs has a huge salvage yard. So these were old chairs, and they had 200 of them coming out of uh, some classroom space. Chairs and, and chair backs for the bottom part. Yeah, so we took the chairs sort of apart. So we have the cushions on the backs and the bottoms. Um, and and foam, of course, is a very uh, good thing not to buy new because it's uh, you know the, it's not the best thing for the environment. Right. Um, and so we managed to not have to buy any new foam material, but wow. to, to make all the seating out of those uh, out of those pieces. Yeah. I just want to remind uh, all the listeners who've just ch- tuned in. I'm speaking today with my first guest, Luke Hagel Cantrell, head of scenic design and designer of the new Swan Theater about which we're speaking here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming live all around the globe and talking about the Globe Theater um, on KUCI.org. Well, we're talking also now about uh, repurposing other people's theaters and office uh, materials into this Swan Theater here at UCI. So, um, and what other materials Luke, are there a, that are a part of this uh, whole we, compact, we, portable um, deal? The main um, structure of the theater, it's built in a series of nine steel towers. Count them, um, folks. Nine pieces he gets yeah. to schlep around <laughs> to the Gateway Commons, and we'll talk about that in the August productions coming up. Yeah, they're, they're huge. They each weigh about two tons. So, wow. Um, I can't lift them myself, but um, we get to a couple of people with a forklift, and we're all... You uh, can with that. Yeah, we're all set to go. Um, so we wanted to build it in a, in a series of large movable towers so that... Um, 
uh, another way that it's sustainable is that instead of building a, a set and then throwing it in the dumpster the way we normally do, um, we this project we we sort of built the space and now we can reuse it again and again and again for many different um, productions. The first two are are by Shakespeare, The Merchant of Venice, which we did this uh, past winter. Yes. And we will redo again this August and then a new production of The Comedy of Errors. So two actually two very different Shakespeare plays. Um uh, and performed in the same in the same space with the, you know the properties are a little different. Um, each production might have a different chair or a different um, banner, but essentially the space will be the same for each production. And those productions, because I I don't want anybody to miss out who's going to be here in the month of August. The first, can you give me the details? I'm trying to call them up here. The uh, and we can uh, give everybody information too about uh, going to uh, to the website uh, for this. Um, there, uh, the it's the new S- S- Swan Shakespeare. Yeah, New web- Swan Shakespeare. New Swan Shakespeare dot, dot, com. O- dot com. That's how to get all the details. But the, the first play will run starting August eighth for right. six performances. Exactly. We're doing a festival this summer, um, which uh, should be the the inaugural uh, summer uh, festival here at UCI, um, where we take the the theater uh, and we're moving it to the right between the the library, the Langson Library, the main library, and folks. the um, study center on the other side. So if you if you've been to that library, you, there's a set of stairs that go down towards the park, and there's a large pla- uh, plaza there. So we're going to set the theater up there. So your audience, when if you're in the audience, you look back past the theater and see you know Aldridge Park at night, which should be beautiful. Oh, so we're facing the green space. The you, commercial space is at our back. Exactly, you're facing Good idea. the green space, and um, and we'll be doing um, actually. Two different things there. In the evenings, there'll be um, performances in repertory of these two different plays. And then during the day, we're using it as a teaching space. So there'll be an um, academy for um, high school age students to come to UCI, work with our graduate students, who are also in the play just during the evening, mm-hmm. and learn about... Um, how the theater works um, as a Shakespearean stage. So one of the things that I get so excited about is that it becomes like a really big teaching tool. Oh, it's (laughs) an exhibit and a a seminar. It's everything. Um, So you can walk it and you can see what it's like to deliver these lines and think about these plays um, standing on the balcony, sitting down down by by the groundlings, um, surrounding the space, um, and uh, the details about... uh, Ticket sales and, and, and showtimes are on that website. Well, you've uh, got inaugural prices for this season. It's very, very affordable. So, yeah. if uh, folks, if you can set aside a couple of lattes now, you've already paid for a ticket. It's, but $15 <laughs> I think, yeah, is I think your top, is top uh, price, and then it goes down for students and seniors. And it, it's accessible to everybody. Now, the only access issue I would raise to all of you, which is a problem with all of the performing arts venues is just getting though getting to the place, not getting inside. Yeah. And so, I'm 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 always talking with the with Dean Lewis about what are we going to do because there are so many patrons who want to support the performances. So, uh, but it uh, it's just an extraordinary structure. And um, and the other part that I wanted for Luke Hegel Cantrell to talk about was though that this is. Performance under fiscal pressure, folks. He's had, as he said, this is going to be, it's, it's not just about saving on waste, but it, uh, from not having to tear down a site, uh, a set design, but you're saving on the out 
outlay of cash for successive new productions. So you'll be able to use this over and over, and it's it's an inaugural season, so you'll be able to use this over, will it just be summer seasons, or maybe there'll be some kinds of springtime sessions? Well, well, we, we hope to, um, you know, one of the, the things that this theater allows us to do is to take it um, around other places. So we've been in conversations with the Sagerstrom Center, for instance, um, over at South Coast Plaza. And they've got lots of open space to do. set up. They and do. accessible open space there. Yeah. Um, and we are, um, you know, this this site over by the library, I think, will be in some ways um, uh, more accessible than some of our theater spaces because we'll be able to, um, for patrons who have a, a difficult time negotiating stairs, we'll be able to have them come in carts around through the park. You're um, setting that up. This is yeah. very important for us to broadcast that here. Yeah, Everybody so will be able to make it to and inside. We really want to make it a very um, open and welcoming experience. And I have to say that... Um, We've gotten great support from the chancellor's office and great support from UCI facilities. Well, they must um, be getting hives from excitement over this. Everybody seems really excited about um, putting on this event in the park in the summer, and I think that um, it's been thrilling for us in the in the drama department to um, put this idea out and get so much positive feedback from the community. Um, so I think there's a real hunger um, for this kind of thing to happen here. Um, at UCI and um, utilize the the park. It's a great resource. Exactly. For us, you I know. want I, you make me think of that. It's the Aldrich Circle is like the most uh, underutilized open space in Southern California, and it's so beautiful. So I guess this will bring a greater visibility for people mm-hmm. who, who. I mean, I I know how far that Ashland, Oregon, pulls their Shakespeare mm-hmm. audiences. I mm-hmm. can imagine you pulling that, but it's with 125 seats per production that you're, it's going to sell out. I yeah. just know that with, after this and the podcast talking about over over uh it's going to be no problem yeah, people selling should it up. try to get their tickets soon because I, I think that um we don't have a lot of seats in there and um and we do expect the demand to be pretty high and um, i was thinking when i was preparing this um that you could just like get a birthday party block in there and everybody <laughs> could all celebrate their birthday inside a block of seating in there and then yep. it's booked and uh and i and as i was saying they'll talk about that birthday and right through that person's memorial service so it's <laughs> so eventful so it, i wanted to remind those who just listening we have a few minutes left with Professor Luke Hagel Cantarella, head of scenic design and designer of the new Swan Theater, and details can be available at the um, on the web at new see newswanshakespeare.com new yeah. yeah. for tickets time. Uh, it starts the comedy bears is the first of the run, and then the um, Merchant of Venice is the second run. The first although start- they they are kind of what we call in repertory, meaning that one yes. night uh, maybe a comedy. Of errors, and then the next night, a Merchant of Venice. So okay. they do overlap somewhat. Good. Um, I think we open the first, um, we open Comedy of Errors, and then there's a, uh, I think about six or seven days later, we open the Merchant of Venice. So there's a little lag on the start times, um, but then they'll be running in repertoire. So you could, you know, see one one night and the other the other night. Um, um, so that you get that festival experience. Oh, you know? and speaking of the festival, we're going to be talking with Jack McManus, who's the director for the campus hospitality. And I'll, I guess I'll ask him whether they're uh, working with you on creating some kind of um, refreshment yeah. possibilities we there. We good food trucks, right? <laughs> we, well, food tr- yeah, we'll talk with Jack about that. We're going to run out of time to talk, cover everything, right. but uh, that that is really going to be wonderful. So um, I really want to thank you for coming on the show today. Thank and uh, did you 
did you want to pitch anything else about uh, this coming up? I mean, it's inaugural season. It's going to go. It's going to move around in time and space. This mm-hmm. particular thing. And it's is there a chance for people to get, I guess, a preview of the structure before it's erected at the Gateway Commons? Well, we'll be putting it. Um, we'll probably be installing it in the beginning of August. I'm not sure the exact date. Um, but we can't start poke it, it in. Like McKee showed me at the the other small. Right theater. now, it's all locked up in storage. Okay, um, so it's a secret. It, it's it's hard to get a Zip look locked. at now, but you can see pictures on the website. And um, that's right. And then and then after we do we put the the theater in the park, we'll be moving it back over to the arts uh, village, and then we'll be setting it up there um, to be used as a classroom for our classes in in Shakespeare. So in um, the fall, in the in, for in next year, you know? okay. Um, so um, you know, for uh, for us, for our students, it becomes a you know a real workshop environment for them. Um, and were students involved in some of the construction at all? I mean, the, they got to do that too. Yeah, we 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 have a great combination of professional uh, staff and students and and uh, one of my graduate students uh, Sara Sedegapache was worked with me on the design of it um, so we always everything we try to do here of course you know um, we try to do work um, you know kind of uh, artistic research um, and bring our students into that so that they can um, help us figure out um, you know the most exciting contemporary way to do it well now that the last the last challenge is to figure out how you can have the Swan Theater and the 200 200- and 14 square foot exhibit somewhere close to each other so we can really we can really think about yeah. it what yeah. we're doing now and what we'll do in the future that well, kind of we're, thing we're very excited to speak about 214 for please a second please post us on um, a little update that's great uh, that it seemed we're working on a, a collaboration with second harvest now um, okay so um we're hoping to do a new installation up at the Second Harvest Warehouse, um, which is up at the El Toro Air Force Base. Um, so that might be a long-term uh, installation of that project. So, at the Great Park? Uh, no. Uh, uh, oh, the El Toro one uh, in Tustin. Yeah, in Tustin. Okay, right, right. I, I, that, I believe so. I haven't, I'm visiting the warehouse next week um, to take a look at it. But that's where they um, bring all their food together um, when they do Second Harvest. Second Harvest... Um, they get uh, extra food from restaurants, m- mainly in hospitality, um, and then distribute it back to um, the needy in the county. Um, well, I think they're a nationwide organization. Um, well, I, as I told your partner when she was on, I really want to see that at the Angel Stadium parking area. Yeah. I want people to go through that on their way into watching a baseball game. Yeah. They yeah. can think about it while they're listening. So, so that's been my theme of this year, things that we can uh, pick up and put in <laughs> parking lots, right? You know? Excellent. <laughs> so, and that's, that's, yeah. the, that's the trend, uh, yeah. using that underutilized space because it's hardly used uh, when it's not being jammed. Well, I thank you so much for coming on to talk about the the new Swan Theater. I wish you all the luck. I can't wait to to get my tickets for both productions. I don't know I get a whole block I'm going to buy there, but it's it's just a thrill. We can all walk there or barely drive over there, or some of you can carpool all the way to Irvine, California in Orange County to see these lovely productions. Thank you, Luke Cantrell, Hagel Cantrell, for being on the show today. Thank you, Claudia. It's been a joy, and we'll be back in a little bit after we um, take a short break, and we're going to talk with Jack McManus, the Director of Housing, of of Hospitality and Dining. So thank you so much uh, for joining us all. Be right back. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. This second portion of the program, we have the pleasure of talking with my next guest, Jack McManus, who is the 
the Director of Hospitality and Dining Services today uh, on the show. Uh, the, this Hospitality and Dining serves the campus community with over 20, count them, dining locations throughout the campus. Operations include 700 student team leaders and 200 career uh, staff. To follow Jack's career at UCI is to follow the maturation of a young university. Jack McManus has served four of our five chancellors and as a Newport Beach child attended the opening ceremony for UCI with President Lyndon Johnson. So you guys uh, that are under the age of 30 can Google and that was a president uh, in uh, the USA. Attention all. I guess that that is where Jack gets that distinctive Secret Service look. You'll know what I mean if you've ever seen him on duty. As a staff member, he started at UCI in September of 1985 with the Student Center in Phase 2, and he worked on Phase 3, which uh, was then where the, uh, the Cross-Cultural cross Center moved into its permanent home uh, from a portable building. So over the years, Jack has worked with events hosting the Dalai Lama Center, Senator Ted Kennedy, Vice President Al Gore, and those are the uncontroversial guests Many others, particularly of particular notoriety, have taxed Jack McManus's managerial dexterity here at UCI. I told you he reminds me of Secret Service. Well, that may be where he also gets it, too. Under Jack's leadership, the launch of a unified dining program has shown growth spurt in the past eight years. Joining me here, too, in Studio A is Jack McManus. Welcome to the show, Jack. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure being here with you. I'm so glad that today you could be with us. Let's first talk about what it takes to build a university dining program and operate it in today's environment. Well, I think today's environment, first off, we compete with, you know, our student population. They grew up with, uh, let's face it, Food Network and um, I've got a daughter here who's a fourth year, and she has actually uh, <laughs> grew up with Iron Chef. So I look at that when you're putting out just the food alone, the expectation uh, from our base clients, our students, and our residents is they're tough on us. So in return, on our culinary side, we need to have chefs that can put out a show like you see on Iron Chef or any of our Food Network shows. We're blessed here to have two pro chef two um, chefs at a Culinary Institute of America, um, Chef Paul and Chef Baca. In our catering area, we're blessed to have Nick Mendez, who has built our program there. Nick has gone to three Olympics, working with Aramark Corporation. He will be at London, running the Olympic Village catering piece. Chef Baca, as well, will be going over to London. In the past, we've had other chefs do Beijing with us. So we've got an Olympic caliber crew um, behind the scenes, but on the front of the scenes, there's a lot of challenges as well. Uh, about eight years ago, Chuck Piper retired um, from his position with the Auxiliary Services. Dan Doros came to the picture as a interim associate vice chancellor for the Auxiliaries out of student affairs. And at the time, Vice Chancellor Manuel Gomez gave us a challenge that he wanted to see his program, his dining program, be unique. Trying to be the best, everybody's going to say they're the best. What but did he mean by unique? He wanted to see changes for us. We didn't have a one-card program at the time. We had a um, retail managed by two different directors. Our residential program was managed by another director. So, you, you know, 
in honesty, we needed to see some efficiencies. Back, you know, eight years ago, we made some changes. As people retired, we consolidated our program from three different points um, of leadership into one, and that was through me, um, working with Dan Doros um, as, I'd say, the backbone and making sure we had support, um, not just in the financial side, but in um, being the sounding board and being someone that can crank numbers on a calculator or in his head like you've never seen. And Dan's personality was one that would always just keep you going. He's an awesome coach. Coached soccer for many years, and I watched him. For me, I'd be happy to play on that team any day. With our program, what we faced at the time, we did have some operations in, you know, throughout the campus and retail that were um, in Chapter 11 by private owners, so the oh, university wow. was not receiving their funds. We also saw operations that wouldn't be open year-round. They'd close sometimes when they just felt like it. Um, it. It was amazing. We didn't see a strong student population with jobs. We saw, um, you know, people working in the locations, but if they're not open year-round, and if they don't have volumes of dollars, they ran small staffs. So we saw a lot of areas to identify for improvement. We saw a dining program that was strong. Um, we had a corporate partner, Aramark, over in our dining areas. That would be over in Pippin, Brandywine, and Middle Earth, and Mesa Commons over in Mesa Corp. Another area we were really lacking in a campus, we didn't have a wine card where a student could, um, you know, just swipe a card and eat a meal um, in a residential or anywhere on this campus in the retail. They could use their ID to swipe, you know, their card to eat in a residential, but their meal plans were only if they're in a mandatory program and a first-year student be living in. They could only eat in their residential units. So that meant if their class was on the other side of the campus, if they didn't get back to their class, they lost their meal. But they couldn't, so they couldn't eat in another residential unit. They only. could, but say if you're over in the physical science neighborhood, we you're don't not have much close. out there. That's right. Correct. And if you're over in the um, bio size, same type of situation. And also it got to choice, you know. Mm. But if you look at it, if you had to, you know, get to somewhere around here, our t all of our schedules are taxed. But a five-minute walk... It's not something that, you know, someone would think is such a crucial thing. But in our world here, in our students' world here, five minutes is a long walk because we don't have a lot of time to get somewhere. Our campus has been designed beautifully where you can get somewhere in five minutes. Once you start surpassing that, it starts getting hard to get to the class on time or to that meeting if you're a faculty or staff. But we put a program together where... Um, the students would have meal plans that would be a block program, so it would be like 100 and they get some retail dollars on their card when they're a resident. They can. So they can go eat over at Panda or Starbucks or BC's or Phoenix if they're on the far side or even Java City out by Cal IT or even over in a school of medicine where you have two locations. But one, we needed the technology. Two, we needed the leadership. And I'm not speaking about me. I'm speaking about the people that really lead right there in each unit. Um, we need capital, so we needed dollars to build. At a time when the university wasn't seeing the dollars, you know, in their pocket. So we partnered up with Aramark Corporation to get some of these pieces. We were able to get out of our arrangement. We were able to bring in retail concepts. We did seven one year, seven the next. We kept opening new retail. We didn't have the branded concepts in here. We actually operate one of the busiest Starbucks in the country. No one would have thought that. Well, it's very close to a big parking lot, a big student center, administration, a library. I mean, it's it's a pretty dense activity area. I wouldn't be surprised that it's one of the busier. Well, what I'm finding, though, is we need to build another one or try to add a wow. second bar in 
for people to wait 30 minutes. I'm ashamed of that, and I'm very sorry. So we're working actively with um, Starbucks Corporation, but they claim they've never had a problem like this. So wow. we'll keep meeting with them, but we need to do more there. Uh, yeah, I, I'd say the biggest challenge, though, was finding good, strong leadership. So what we did was you know, looked at some students that were graduating. We also partnered with Aramark that brought in some talented team members in the management side, and we started a management institute within our own department. We'd have students that now, um, quite frankly, in a lot of our retail, we will, they're, they're UCI anteaters in there that have graduated. And there's also anteaters that have worked within our locations that have gone elsewhere within the Aramark Corporation, who's a corporate partner. But so we were able to find our leadership. We needed employees. We insourced the employees that were Aramark, so they received full union benefits, along with the university benefits. But this also brought a strain financially. We're a dishwasher next year. Entry wage for us will be over 14 an hour. But that's a living wage, so I do believe it's the right thing. That's a Chancellor felt it good was neighbor the right policy. thing. Dan Doros felt it was the right thing. So we all knew it was the right thing. So how do you manage this where you're not taxing the students a higher price point? Instead, we worked with a corporate partner, and we brought all of our pieces together and said, here you go. You have our residential. You have our catering. You have our retail. But they came to the table with the money. We did an extended contract, which was run through Office of President and the UC local here at UCI. Mm -hmm. And we did a 15-year arrangement to get where we needed to go. At any time, though, either party can walk away from that contract with a 90-day notice. Wow. So it's not something that holds the university for a long-term commitment that they can't walk away. But if we do, we need to be able to pay back to Aeromark about $9 million that they've brought to the table currently. Wow. I'd just like to let the listeners who mm -hmm. have just joined us on the show, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web live on KUCI.org. My guest in this portion of the program is Jack McManus, Director of Hospitality and Dining Services on the campus, and he's talking about the corporate partnerships that help uh, bring a living wage to the employees. And I want to find out the other side of it. Uh, were you able to negotiate a different different uh, fees, a price scheme for uh, the Starbucks and the other vendors, because I'm thinking, I as a student, I wouldn't have been able to afford the uh, the deluxe Starbucks, um, you know, uh, every day. I mean, if I always wanted a cup of coffee every day, I can't always fill my thermos and I'm in a dorm, but uh, I, I'm not sure how students can get, do they get a break at all with uh, buying the coffee there, or what is there, are there alternatives? No, it's going to, on the pricing, it's compared to um, street pricing through our marketing and through Starbucks Corporation. They set the pricing where we're at, but it isn't where a student on a campus gets a discount. They do the other day. We had um, a frappy hour, we called it. It was two-for-one frappuccinos, where we would have students waiting an hour prior, 45 minutes prior. Wow. But it was two-for-ones, and it was fun for them. For me, I have a hard time waiting in a line. Uh, it doesn't seem like we have the same situation here because it seems to be a social time. But as far as a price point, I think you bring up a good point. And that's where I'll also share. We had, prior to our closing the student center, we had the Antel Pub and Grill that we were involved with. On the reopening of the Antel Pub and Grill, um, we have an advisory group that we work with through AGS. The contract runs through my office. Um, Association of, Stud of Graduate Students. Correct. AGS. Mm -hmm. Thank you for, for that one. Um, so the commissions on the pub we have here, um, a pr large percent goes back to 
the largest percent, about 7%, goes to the Associated Graduate Students, so they have some revenue. Student Center, in my department, we split 2% uh, of the arrangement. So right now, here you've got folks giving back to the campus again, and our pub maintained itself. Right now, that pub is a success, but you Huge. talk about price points. The students that were helping us with what should that theme be for that wanted a no-swill zone. If you get in there and you're buying a beer for under 5 or $6, sometimes I don't know if you're going to find that necessarily. It's, again, a, you talk about and you hear the students, as my own ch children have and as I do, can I afford that Starbucks or can I afford that beer? Well, you got it seems like they're paying it, so they're, they're finding their money somewhere because the pub is it is a success but it's again we were surprised that the students did not want to see a lower price um, non-swill brand in there and it was the students it wasn't the the um, other community the faculty or other visitors that were asking for that I mean it was strictly a student kind of a, a survey On the, so you have an idea about that what the market not was going to bear at all the contract when we put it together the students wanted to have a strong say so there's a pub advisory group the meets, um, the AGS, Associated Graduate Students, were part of the negotiations of the contracts, and it was they, and they still continue today, to say this is what we want. I think where we benefited, though, is we also have some darn good food in there. Oh, it's, and good craft beers. Yes, we That's do. That's a big selling point. And another one is, I, I'll give some credit there, is you have some very um, talented folks and educated um, team members in the pub um, that can tell you an awful lot about your beer. There, there's other areas, though, sensitivity-wise for a university. Um, first off, should you have a pub on your campus? That's a big issue for many campuses. They say no. We're trying to have a pub on our campus that's got an education component to it, so we'll run a program called the Porter Club that some would be opposed to. I want to also. What does that mean? What is the Porter Club? Well, I'll give you the rough as I get it. it it's getting a student just to come in taste a beer close to a daily period, you know, so almost daily, and at the end of the quarter, they get to be on a plaque and get a mug. Now, is that um, encouraging um, excessive drinking or building habits that are negative, um, such as alcoholism or an addicting personality into someone? There's people that argue each side of that. I, I appreciate where our operator, Tim Haskell, has done the best job he can to, one, run a business as a businessman, but two, also try to understand he's in an educational environment. And it's a real tough road to ride, you know, at different times. But um, right now, they, you know, the, the, we see articles in our newspaper on campus, the new U, on a regular basis about the quarter club. We've received no negative feedback, just positive. But for me as an administrator, it's a tough one because should I close this type of program down? You know, should I say no? But also I need to believe in, you know, where we are is the operator the right to do business. At this point, we're continuing. But as we start seeing feedback come in, we'll work with the operator. And I know at the end, the type of people we've partnered with, with Tim, with his business running the pub, and also Aramark, at the end of the day, they're all going to do the right thing. Well, uh, yes, ahead. Jack, I just I want to ask a couple of things. Um, is there a means for which the students can give you input without uh, voting with their uh, their dining card? But are there ways they can, from time yes. to time, give you some feedback about the services? For one, I have some other questions to follow up. We send out a um, campus survey twice a year. 
It's um, actually put out through a marketing company that Aeromark puts out, pays for. Um, it includes the pub, Antel Pub and Grill. It also includes um, Cafe Espresso, which is another operation we have over by um, Physical Sciences. Um, we do not operate the university clubs, so that's not um, included in the package. But it goes out twice a year, each year. Um, for um, Aeromark as an account, we receive back probably the strongest feedback. We're getting close to 4,000 responders twice a year. We also do focus groups on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And a, a tool I find helpful is we do intercept surveys where we'll have set questions. Um, students will actually go to students with the iPads and ask questions there so you can get some immediate. And they're willing to. Now, mm -hmm. you were talking at the very beginning of this interview about how you're competing with some of these uh, celebrity chef kinds of experience exposures about food but also you are sort of on the the, the front lines of the whole admissions process and uh, colleges and universities are all competing for uh, enrolling the best students based on what they can provide in the dining amenities so that's that's always I'm thinking gnawing at your uh, on your clipboard how to out compete with uh, everybody else who keeps building brighter and zanier um, dining facilities and uh, and you have on your plate you know, the, probably you're not just talking about sort of the different the divide about whether alcohol should or shouldn't be, or how how much it should be dispensed. But the uh, the whole nutrition divide, whether um, you know you're going to face you're going to be meeting the demand of students who are uh, have been nursed literally on fast food, and but you know you know in your heart this is a bad way for them to keep going, and because they've just transitioned away from their homes, and now they're you're feeding them day in and day out, a week long, quarter long, uh, so they're uh, you're you're trying to sort of their, your paternalism is sort of uh, has to be kind of judiciously uh, administered in uh, what is offered in the dining halls. I think you bring up an awesome point here. And yes, it is struggling um, at times to try to make that right decision and hope you did it right at the end of the day. There's times where we make a decision and it wasn't the right, but at least through our mechanisms from surveys to focus groups and also our campus community. They're loud about food. The food seems to be a big topic, and I'm glad it is. Um, but you speak of just the student component. I, I'd put that out to the faculty as we're recruiting. I'd also put it out to our student-athlete piece and coaches that we're recruiting through athletics um, as well, and also you know administrators that the university is trying to bring in. It is a competitive market to try to be the very best. It's having the best students, best faculty, best administrators, you know, best athletes to bring recognition, like best, our volleyball team. Best hospitality directors. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, uh, I've got some great colleagues out there that have been very helpful. Sean Lapine up at Berkeley was the first one I went to to get advice. He, got, he has an awesome program. Where we are taxed here is um, capital dollars over the years to do new residential dining. You'll see it going up on the other universities or sister schools. I'm not seeing it right now. We're going to do the best we can with our food program. We're going to do the best we can with our customer service and our quality that we're putting out. And we're going to do the best we can with our price points. I'm a little concerned about the capital investment dollars of building in residential right now to do new facilities, you know, doing a high rise, say, I don't feel the time's quite right now because mm -hmm. you're going to have to fund it one way or the other. Well, the high rise means everybody has to go to one place. And there's that commute again back, uh, between classes and meetings and, uh, uh, you know, to, over to the dining and space and back again. Well, I agree with you. I mean, here we're running with a large student population working with us. It's hard enough for me to get around to the locations, which I do, 
day and night and weekends, but you know, our shuttle service is doing their best to get folks here from up in the East Campus area. Um, you take, a, you know, we're all strained. If I go, to, you know, to a 24-hour operation, just trying to get my student staff here is tough based on our commuting system. Exactly. Do exactly. I want to ride and bike at 2 a.m.? Not feeling real good about that, and I'm a bicyclist. Yes, that's right. I wanted to mention that that most of us got here by bike today. Uh, yes, we did. <laughs> so, uh, Jack included. So, I, it's this sustainability uh, me- uh, message is uh, being operationalized even in getting to the studio. Well, I we've really run out of time, and I want to make sure Ramon gets his due and his sustainability message with respect to transit. I just um, I, I'll leave with Dimitri, who's going to take up an interview with you at the end of the week on Friday at five. Correct. But um, and about Maybe some of the most notorious guests that you had to deal with to hold it together because there's a security issue to hospitality. I hope uh, Dimitri gets to take that up. I just want to put a pitch in as I uh, just before the interview began with Jack is that when we're talking sustainability, I want to see drinking water fountains outside the student center plaza so that we don't all have to go in and buy a plastic bottle of water, which is is a horribly unsustainable proposition. And Jack knows the jurisdiction. He's going to follow it up today. And uh, if listeners, Jack, tell them, tell us how uh, listeners can get a hold of you for additional feedback. Well, I'll give you my cell phone just to start oh with. Oh, my gosh. It's 24-7. If you call my desk line, it'll go there anyway. But it's 949-677-3091. Once again, Jack McManus, Director of Hospitality and dining, 949-677-3091. Um, believe it or not, Friday night I was helping a, one of our alleged council people from Associated Students um, with our undergrads. He needed something at 1130 at night for that next morning. We made it work. Wow. So again, we'll take it. But I do want to follow up on something you mentioned in your previous Just interview. to wrap, yes. And that was with oh, Second yes, with Harvest. The- we work with seven, Second Harvest as well. Dean Lewis over in the arts, awesome person. Awesome. And yes, he and I have already spoken. We will be out there supporting the summer program. We need to keep our programs running year-round, I do believe. Um, it's it's crucial to try to build this community here on this campus. There's a large population here. I want to thank you for the opportunity. Oh, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah. And I really appreciate it. And I hope Dimitri covers all the holes that are didn't get filled here today so that uh, we can really do justice to um, uh, what an amazing career you're having we're not. This is not a tribute yet, folks, what you're having here. So I want to thank you, Jack, for being on the show. Don't go away, folks. We're going to be right back after just a brief break and have Ramon on. Everybody eats. Everybody eats. Meat and fish and cereal. Carrots, peas, and beets. Everybody knows that everyone he meets likes to eat how do we know it's so cause everybody 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 eats everybody gets around to my next guest on ask a leader is ramon zavala who's going to talk about the sustainability and upcoming bike safety workshop and we're going to blast through it in less than two minutes uh if um so if, if you don't think that uh, transit uh, bike safety transit workshops aren't sexy, you just haven't been to the ER, folks. Ramon uh, is a formerly a student. Uh, he graduated from UCI. He has, uh, in his own inestimable way of sustainability, he has never held a driver's license, uh, nor has he... Um, 
owned ever owned a car, he gets around on that bike. He is a certified instructor with the League of American Bicyclists and a recent recipient of the California Public Parking Association's Merit Award. Impressive, impressive commitment to sustainable transit. Welcome to the remaining minutes, Ramon Zavala on Ask a Leader. That's great to be here. I'm glad you're here, and I want you to tell us, apart from the www.bike.uci.edu, uh, uh, what's working um, with the uh, work, what workshop opportunities are coming up for employees, and I guess students might be included in that. Yes, we have two workshops this week. Uh, the first is today from noon to 1 p.m. Student Center, Emerald Bay D. It's a bike education workshop uh, talking about commuting to and from the campus, around the campus, and basically all the best possible ways you can ride your bike. It's how to become an awesome bicyclist, in my opinion. The second workshop is the exact same thing, repeated just for the other side of campus. That way you could get there a bit easier for your brown bag lunch. That will be Thursday, Natural Sciences 1, uh, in room 1114. Uh, we've advertised this on the Zotmail, so if you've received an email from Wendell Brazi within the last couple of weeks, by all means, check that out. It'll have all the details. Uh, furthermore, we're offering free bike lights for a limited number of attendees. Uh, front and back? Front and back, that's Ooh. right. So we have the rear one, so you have your confidence and security on the road. We have our front one, so you can be fully legal on the road also after dark. Oh, that's that safety is being seen, folks. So that's that's tremendous. Well, so those are the times because it's, it's on. It's starting right after this broadcast, practically, and practically. into next week. So I, I if you can, with uh, George has given me a little uh, finger that I can run a little over, and I, but I don't want to take it advantage of his listeners' largest. Just uh, rem- are there any trends you want to tell us about more sustainable um, choices being taken on, around, and to the campus? All right, sustainable trends. Well, basically. A lot of people are riding their bikes, and that's fantastic. Uh, what's great is that we're somewhere between playing catch-up and somewhere be- and between uh, l- leading the pack here. Uh, when I came in with the department just over a year ago, uh, bis- bicycling was coming up, and it was extremely popular, and now we're actually guiding it in the proper direction so that we have bikes and cars on the road. Uh, we're very realistic. We know not everyone in the world is going to be biking. We know that the cars are still going to be on the road, so it's all about coexistence, education, uh, courtesy, and communication. Excellent. Well, I'm. Th- that's a terrific note. Uh, did you want to say anything more other than the, uh, those trends in the workshop safety uh, pointers here before we close the show, Ramon? Definitely. Quick message about bike racks, because this yes. really is uh, one of the most popular topics that's brought up. Please. Uh, we have bike racks that have been put in at engineering and at social sciences, social ecology. It's been a total increase of about 50% in bike parking. Yes. Student Center is coming up next in the summer, and we're going to continue going around counterclockwise uh counterclockwise around the campus until we're uh, fully complete. Also, lock up your bikes, people. Uh, use a U-lock if you got it. If not, consider getting one uh, because you are the first step in security with keeping uh, thieves off campus. And we're going to have enough uh, bike locks to accommodate the Shakespeare uh, theater goers around the Gateway Commons. I think we've got some at the library, but that, that might be a situation, too, with where that... Uh, movable theater moves too to you know for people to lock up their bikes at night well that's something nearby. that we've considered is okay great uh, the concept of uh, some sort of bike valet going on it, it's a bit of manpower a little bit of investment but by all means give as much feedback as possible send your emails your comments concerns to biking at uci.edu the more input we get the better it gets 
Well, that is tremendous. I want to thank you, Ramon, for being uh, coming all this way on your bike and with your message and for um, uh, allowing us to squeeze you in. I want everybody in this studio to be uh, have a, a standing invitation to come back, fill us in on some updates on what's going on. Uh, you've told me and taught me a great deal. Thanks so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. So what we're going to do is we're going to close it. We're going to give this show back to on to George Rosales with George Had a Hat in just a moment. Thanks for joining us. The next coming weeks, we're going to talk about veterans to the extent I can and fill you in on some of the primary ballot information. That's June 5th. If you haven't registered to vote yet, folks, you've missed your deadline uh, yesterday. Uh, but for the rest of you who are voting, we're going to try to give you a little bit more information of what's on the ballot. Thanks. Stay close. George Rosales, George Had a Hat next.